Welcome to Laughing Your Mask the podcast where we talk to comedians about navigating the world of comedy since the pandemic. I'm Katherine Cowan. And I'm Carly Palestina. And today we are talking to the wacko magician, Mike Kaplan. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Kaplan, and wacko magician is uh, a moniker that I am I'm proud to have received from the online Wu-Tang Clan name generator, uh, but also from uh, the truest, deepest part of my heart. Thanks for having me. Oh, Thank yeah. You for being so here. glad we're here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just to start it off, um, where are you from? How'd you get started in comedy? Just tell us about you. Okay. I'll I'll try to I'll I'll try to hit all the the important points. So uh, Livingston, New Jersey is where I was born, lived until I was 18, moved to Boston, went to college and grad school in the Boston area. And then when I was in my early 20s, began doing comedy at the Comedy Studio, a club uh, in that at the time was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, right across the street from Harvard. And uh, I was a, an aspiring musician. Uh, a wacko musician at the time, or maybe not even that <laughs> wacko, but uh, I had some songs that were funny uh, and I wanted to play them wherever I could. And so I found online, I was just sort of did the equivalent at the time in the late 90s, early 2000s of Googling, which didn't exist, uh, ya Googling or what have you, uh, internet searching for uh, clubs, performance venues. I found a bunch of music venues, a bunch of bars, and I found one comedy club, the Comedy Studio. I asked them if I could perform my funny songs there, and they said, sure, you could have five minutes on stage. And I was like, five minutes? That's hardly enough for all of the songs that I contain. But I went, and I did a couple songs, and in between, I talked, and sometimes people laughed, and I was like, I like that. And so over the next couple of years, I started uh, writing jokes and then uh, stretching out the time in between the songs until eventually I stopped bringing the guitar all together. And in around 2002, I was like, I am now an aspiring comedian as opposed to an aspiring singer songwriter, though I do also still sing and write songs. Wow, that's awesome. Did you have any like interest in comedy before? this sort of like weird turn or was it like very kind of random? Uh, that's a great question. And the answer I think is I didn't know, I, I did not have a specific interest in doing stand-up comedy because I did not know that that was something that a not famous person could do. Because the only stand-up comedians that I ever seen were famous people on TV who became famous, who obviously, now I know, now I know they started as not famous people. But you know, when you're a kid watching like adults on TV, you're like, oh, Seinfeld. I think, I guess there's always been a Seinfeld, you know, like since beginningless time, it's, there's been like, what's the deal with the Big Bang? You know, that kind of thing. And <laughs> now, now I understand, but I didn't know. Uh, so I, but here's the thing. I, doing comedy or having the label of stand-up comedian was something that I was not familiar with, but I did enjoy making my friends laugh. Like I did have some songs that were intended to be funny and like among my friend group, as, as is the case in many friend groups, like you can make each other laugh in ways that I remember I thought about writing a book as a kid, but I was like, but how will I 
everything that I think is funny and interesting depends on the context of who I am and what has happened in my life. And I'd be like, I'd have to like write my whole life story in order for anybody to understand the things that I think are funny or worth telling. And now I understand that uh, that is often the way that people do create books or literature, fiction, nonfiction, memoirs, like comedy, art of any kind. Uh, but at the time I was like, well, I guess it's impossible for me. I'm not the one who can do it. But there were definitely moments since I remember like age 12, I said a funny thing in math class and it made everybody laugh. And I was like, oh, that feels good. But I didn't know that that was a feeling that could be chased. The way that I do comedy is not so different from the way that I do music, you know, to create, uh, you know, lyrics or to create the content of jokes, to create the musicality, the, you know, the, the chords, the melodies, the harmonies, uh, and to think about, you know, the rhythm and the cadence and the, the tone and the timbre, like all the things that go into creating music, like there are sort of analogs. There's, there's things like that, that, or, you know, correlations that go into creating comedy. Like, you know, not only the things that you say, but the way that you say them, uh, the order of things, you know, the, the movements of the comedic symphony, as it were. And so now looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, it's just like, do you know the, uh, the Sufi mystic poet Rumi has said a lot of beautiful things, including something that I'll paraphrase and make it much less eloquent. But the idea is that we are all flutes that the universe, uh, the wind of the universe like blows through and we're all different shapes so it all comes out different like some it comes out high pitched some it comes out low pitched some it comes out as visual art some it comes out as dance some it comes out as music some it comes out as comedy so like i'm a you know mic shaped uh roomy flute that the universe is you know like uh i don't mean to be like i am but a conduit for you know things come in and things come out things get alchemized within whatever I or my consciousness is, sometimes they come out as songs, sometimes they come out as poems, sometimes they come out as jokes. And so now I'm like, oh yeah, it's not a surprise that I was trying to do music and incidentally, accidentally, organically stumbled into realizing I could do or was doing comedy because it is all just a matter of, you know, being open to what is, what being open to receiving what is coming in and then putting it out in whatever form makes sense. Very poetically put, your name is spelt very uniquely for Mike. How did that happen? Did your parents name you that? Great question. Thank you for asking. It is, uh, I mean, what if I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. The way I spell my name is just a regular name spelling and I don't know anything other than that. Um, I. Uh, when I was around, I don't know, 14, 15, I could look up exactly when it was, but I was at this summer camp. I went to uh, an arts summer camp and it was a place where uh, like I had been sort of shy and introverted. My family had just moved and I had started over at a new school and I didn't know how to make friends because I never really had to make friends because it had seemed, you know, growing up, just all the friends were there. Like you went, I went to kindergarten through seventh grade with the same kids and it seemed like they just, the same way Seinfeld has existed, always like these kids existed as my friends since beginningless time as far back as I could remember. But in eighth grade, I started over at a new school and didn't know exactly how to uh, how to do, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know that, I didn't know if there was a way to do it. So I was just sort of quiet and kept to myself and like I did the school work, but didn't have a ton of friends in school until uh, my summer camp sort of magically 
uh, helped me blossom into a person who understood uh, that there is no, there, there's no like uh, book that tells you exactly how to live life. And I learned that there were like kids there who were like me, kind of, you know, maybe outcast in their school or felt that way, felt like these misfit, weirdo, artsy, you know, just like, and maybe everybody feels like that, but it definitely, it felt to me like this was a place where I had found my people who like invited me invited me to come out of where I felt like I was hiding. And they were like, you're cool, you're fun, you're nice. And like, look, we are, we all can be like that with each other, for each other in this artsy, hospitable environment. And that is a place where I first uh, learned that Prince was changing his name to a weird symbol, which happened in the early mid nineties uh, and became known as the artist formerly known as Prince, which I later understood to be because of a maybe dispute with his record label, some sort of production legality that he couldn't uh, for a certain amount of time produce songs as Prince without somebody else uh, getting something that he didn't want them to have. I don't know the exact story, but he was just like, yep, this is this is who I am now. I am I'm me and it doesn't matter what I'm called or how it's spelled or if it's even in the alphabet. And so that was what I saw. And I was like, that guy's weird and cool and doing something. I <laughs> I'm going to do something weird and cool. And, and so I was like, I'm going to just, I'm not even going to like create a new symbol. I'm just going to like change the spelling of all the letters of my name. And, you know, give, my parents named me Michael, uh, spelled the traditional M-I-C-H-A-E-L. And so, and I went by Mike, uh, the uh, a traditional nickname. And I was like, I'll still be Mike. And I'll just, and I'm going to keep the M because there's very little other way to spell M in the English <laughs> language. Uh, and I also liked having my initial remain the same. And, uh, but I was like, I, I can, I can get all these other letters out of here. And, uh, so I was like, yeah, I'll be, that guy's weird and cool. I'm going to be Mike spelled M Y Q. Then eventually a couple of years later, Prince changed his name back because, uh, the time, uh, it was no longer necessary for him to be that symbol. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm alone now. And my senior year of college was when I started really trying to go out and perform, uh, my music, which led led me to comedy, and by that point, I was also just telling everyone, "Yeah, this is this is the way I spell my name now." And if people were like, "I don't like it," well, well, then I guess we're not friends. And people were like, "I like it." I'm like, well, it's a nice friend detector. It's like a nice filter. <laughs> if people are like, "That's cool," it, it's funny because sometimes when people are like, "Did your parents do that?" and because sometimes people are like, "Wow, your parents were so creative," and I'm like, "It was actually me that was creative." And like, "Oh, that's actually different now." It's weird like because we all we're all sort of uh gifted and or the opposite of gifted gifted or otherwise with you know uh with names and sort of the name the, the spelling of my name is sort of now incidental it's sort of at the time maybe represented like that growth to me like i actually had a dream around in my in my teenage years around that time that i didn't know exactly what it meant but now i have uh, sort of a, an analysis of it that I dreamed that I was Batman and a history teacher and that I was uh, like Batman. Wow. Super cool. History. Not my least favorite class in school. And that the Batcave was in a movie theater and I was trying to go to the Batcave, but my students were there and they were going to see that I was Batman and that wasn't supposed to happen, I thought. And then in college, uh, in grad school, I was an RA. And as a resident assistant, we had to go through all these trainings. And one of the trainings we went through uh, there was like an optional, you could choose an elective for this particular time period. And I chose a dream analysis discussion that a, a therapist was leading. And the therapist was basically, uh, he was like a part of the counseling 
uh, center at school. And he was saying like, there are books on how to interpret your dreams. Uh, and he's like, I, you can read those, but mostly you have all the information on how to interpret your dreams. He's like, some dreams like maybe don't have anything to do, like it, not every dream can be interpreted or you might not know what every dream means, but if there are dreams that have things in them that mean things to you, what do those things mean to you? Like if there's a truck in your dream, is your dad a truck driver? Were you born in a truck? You know, do you, do you like trucks? Do you not like trucks? What, what does a truck mean to you? Like a book can't tell you that, but you within yourself can tell you that. And so I was like, what does Batman mean to me? I'm like, I love comic books. I love Batman. Batman's cool. What does history mean to me? Uh, it wasn't my favorite thing. It's like sort of the opposites. And so I was like, oh, maybe this represents to me like the, the fact that history class, like school, my, the place where I felt uncomfortable, the part of my life where I didn't feel like I could totally be myself and be accepted compared to Batman my summer camp like people are like oh wow you are a cool person you are a superhero and that now at towards the end of that dream everything was coming together and i was like oh people are going to find out that i am actually just this one person who contains all of these aspects and i think that like the spelling of my name as it originally was like which is totally fine m-i-k-e love it if people write it people call me that people think of that totally fine people pronounce myq weird mick meek moik whatever it is also fine like because i am you know i am the person that i am regardless of like the name or the spelling of the name but yeah at the time it uh in retrospect sort of represented uh that growth like that that dichotomy of the part of me that was potentially trying to seem normal or be normal or fit in and eventually uh coming to terms with and and being not only just accepting who I am, but like creating this new version of myself, like sort of dreaming this aspect of me into being and being like, well, who do I, who am I? Who do I want to be? Who do I want to become? And so now it is useful as a stage name as well. Thanks for asking. <laughs> awesome. Great. God, there's a lot of backstory to it. Oh, sure. Um, so now you, um, are a working comedian. You do a lot of comedy. We like to talk about uh, how the pandemic has changed comedy on this podcast. But before the pandemic, it seemed like you were up to quite a bit, including like being on late night. Could you talk a little bit about like how you've accomplished these like major comedy milestones, like how they came to be um, and what sure. that experience was like for you? Definitely. Thank you for asking. Uh, so Around 2002 is when I, uh, I was in grad school, I was in Boston, and that's when I was really focusing on becoming a comedian. Uh, becoming a, a full-time comedian was the goal. Like I saw that there were, you know, my, my comedy elders, like some of them only had the job of comedian, that they made enough of money to make their living doing comedy. And that was, that was my main goal, was that I didn't want to have to have the other jobs. I liked the other jobs I had. I worked at the Barnes and Noble Cafe at my school. I, I taught at this summer camp that was so important to me over the summers for many years. I, uh, I eventually, I was studying linguistics in grad school. I found a, a job at the speech and language department of a technology company that I really loved. So uh, from 2002 until like 2007-ish, I was doing all of those things. I was just doing so many different jobs. I was a resident assistant at Boston University where I was in school. And I was doing everything just to allow myself the time and space to write as much comedy as I could and get on stage as much as I could. In Boston, there were a few like full-time clubs and then there were a bunch of, you know, 
like uh, like any any city, probably, you know, there's bars and restaurants and uh, shows popping up in parks and laundromats and bowling alleys and, you know, attics and basements and wherever. And so as I started doing comedy, I found uh, all the all the places that I could perform. And I just would I would drive from Boston like hours to uh, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, any states in New England, down to New York sometimes, sometimes driving for hours just to do five minutes on stage at an open mic. Uh, and eventually, like in Boston, there was sort of like a hierarchy that seemed like you could follow um, where they're like, OK, if you have if you get 15 minutes and you can prove it, you know, if you have it on tape, then you could send it to these bookers and you could send it to, you know, and hopefully then you get to be an opening act on like a three person show. You come up and you do 10 to 15 minutes, you get 50 bucks, you get a free meal of Chinese food from the restaurant that the show's at. And you just do that every weekend until you can prove that you have 20 minutes or 25 or 30. Then you're the middle act. And you, you do the same driving. You get, you, do the, you get the same food. You get a little more money. And you do 20 to 30 minutes. And then to become a headliner, it seemed like very, people in Boston, the headliners had to die because there weren't that many spots opening up. Or you had to move to New York or move to L.A. or move or become a, you know, a comic on the road. And my goal... My goal was to just do it however I could. And I learned that uh, there were colleges that would pay you to do an hour of comedy and they would pay you, like if I was making, you know, 50 bucks to do 10 minutes of comedy on the regular, like colleges would pay sometimes, you know, 10 times, 20 times as much for you to do an hour of comedy. Like the scale, it was just a completely different economic market. And I was like, if I can, and I was, I was still a college student. So I was like, if I feel like these are, these are my audiences, like my, I felt like I thrived in front of people who enjoyed sitting down, listening, raising their hands when they wanted to be heard and not drinking while they were in class, you know, as opposed to, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the king of a rowdy bar. You know, I'm going to make people <laughs> listen, even though they didn't want to be a comedy show, even though they didn't know there was going to be a comedy show, they think they're, they're funnier. They're definitely louder. Even than my microphone, I was like, I prefer, like, it was a nice, uh, I feel like the, the comedy studio where I started is also like a womb-like environment where the audience was encouraged to listen and engage and they were like comedy savvy. And so my goal became to get a college booking agent. And my goal to get on TV was actually in part in service of that goal. Like I wanted to get on TV so that I could prove to a college booking agent that I was, you know, of a certain level enough that they they should uh, have me on their roster and book me to perform at colleges so I could make my living doing stand-up. Of course, also, I'd, I'd watched a ton of Conan. I really enjoyed Letterman. I watched Leno on The Tonight Show growing up as well. And I just, I loved jokes. And so, of course, there became also the goal in mind of like, just that for its own sake, to get on late night as sort of a marker of success. Uh, as well as the the hopefully helpful stepping stone to uh, become booked other places. And I so just a few, I feel like the first time I auditioned for, like the first late night show I auditioned for was Conan. It was probably in like 2004. I drove down from Boston to New York. I performed on a show with, I think, Mike Birbiglia was on the show and uh, Robert Kelly was on the show. And I forget who else all was, but like comedians who are like my elders who are now like, you know, who are now doing uh, 
specials every uh, every couple of years. And at the time, I was just like two years in, and I'm like, I'm the same as these guys. I deserve to be here. My jokes are good, and they should be on Conan. And uh, it was uh, a good experience to learn that that just because I thought it didn't mean it was true. Mm-hmm. Um, also around 2004, I think I met uh, Eddie Brill, who at the time was the, he was a comedian who also was the booker for stand-ups on Letterman. And he did a, a panel discussion at, uh, at a comedy festival, maybe the Boston Comedy Festival, where he told, he's like, I am a comedian and as such, I know you, you comedians want us bookers to watch your sets and and you want to be involved like you want it to not be mysterious like how do i do this how does it work he's like here's my address send me videotapes at the time that was the way it was as before like links and such he's like send me a tape i do my best to watch every tape i get and to get back to every comedian who sends me a tape with feedback uh and and so i was like great i took down his address i sent him a tape then like maybe it might have been like August of some, of 2004 and I feel like several months later he called me back and he was like you have a lot of good jokes uh you need more just time being a comedian you need to marinate more you need to be more poised on stage you need to be more confident and comfortable uh you need and he was like but yeah just keep doing it and keep keep being in touch with me and so I just sent him a tape maybe every year, every whenever I had a new tape where I thought I was better. And he would tell me like specific jokes. He's like, this joke will work on Letterman. This joke will be perfect. And, uh, and he had me audition for him numerous times uh, in, uh, in real life show situations. One of them is I, I think on my YouTube channel, I only have one stand-up set and it's from I think 2008 and it was part of an audition for for that Letterman Booker, that it was, to that point, the best seven-minute set that I'd ever done, like b- both of what I was doing and what the audience was reacting, in part because when I started, I feel like silence seemed like the enemy. I feel like silence seems like the enemy to a new comedian because silence is an indication that uh, you're not doing the job that you're supposed to do, getting laughter. Uh, eventually silence when, you know, done, when used for a purpose, like you tell a joke and you stop and then you don't immediately rush into the next joke, uh, silence demonstrates potentially, you know, poise and control, uh, not poison control, uh, but that's (laughs) get poisoned. But, uh, yeah. So I remember that particular set in 2008, the comedy studio was packed and they were the audience was so responsive and it you know the host did a wonderful job the audience was just the biggest audience i'd ever seen there like probably a fire hazard and the the the, i couldn't i had to i used i was used to just like just steamrolling through just like not pausing at all in my in my kind of like look there's gonna be sound happening no matter what so that if there's no laughter uh there's gonna be uh nobody's gonna even notice because i'm just on to the next thing but this audience was so like devastatingly responsive that i had to stop i in between every time i got to a a point where there was a laugh the laugh was so loud that i was like i guess i have to wait and after that show the booker told me he's like that was 
phenomenal. He's like, every other time he had notes, he was just like, that was, that was a phenomenal set. And I was like, wow. And then I auditioned for him another time, maybe a few months later. And he's like, you're rushing again. And I was like, okay. And then, so that was 2008. 2009, I, I got an email from the booker for, at the time, The Tonight Show with Conan, who was, was began in 2009 taking over The Tonight Show for a limited, what we now know would be a limited window. That particular booker had seen me audition for uh, a different comedy festival that I didn't get in 2006 or 2007, the HBO Aspen Comedy Festival. Um, and so, I mean, I guess the way that I got all of these auditions was just by going to all these open mics, going to all these showcases, going to all these, like saying yes to everything that people offered me and asking people, can I come here? Can I do this? Like in Boston, there was a nice community where they're like, look, the Montreal Comedy Festival is sending somebody. We're going to showcase these comedians this uh, on this night. And just different festivals then started, like you learn who they are, they learn who you are. And so I got an email that said, uh, I'm booking The Tonight Show with Conan. Would you like to submit a tape? I saw you a few years ago. Here are some of your jokes that I liked, if you want to consider those. And I put together a set, and I started recording five-minute sets, and I sent them to the booker, and he eventually said, yes, uh, we. this is the set. And I think that was probably like, he, he wrote to me in June of 20, uh, 2009, July of 2009, he's like, we've got the set. Uh, and he said, and I think December of 2009, I did the set on The Tonight Show with Conan. Uh, January of, of 2010, I ran into Eddie Brill, the, the previous booker of Letterman, who was like, hey, I saw your set. You could have done those jokes on Letterman if you wanted. And I was like, that's what I was trying to tell you. And <laughs> he's like, you're definitely ready to do the show. And so from that point on, I made it a priority to be like, oh, what jokes could I now do on Letterman now that I've done these jokes? on Conan's Tonight Show. And I just started thinking that way of like, oh, what what are the jokes? What is a new set that I could send to this booker, send to this booker, send to this booker? Like, and in the meantime, that was all like, a, in some ways, I mean, in some, in some ways, like, completely gratifying, completely gratitude inducing. Uh, and also, are you familiar with, uh, there's a, a Zen concept or a Buddhist concept uh, called uh, chop wood, carry water, which is uh, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. And the idea in comedy for me, this resonates like when you're starting to do comedy, uh, how do you do it? You know, look at look at what the the wisest comedy elders say. They're like, well, you just get on stage and you perform, you write and you perform. You listen back, you edit, you figure it, and you just keep, basically just write and perform. You're like, well, what next? Just keep writing and performing, and eventually you will learn what the next thing to do is. You will discover for yourself, like you're sort of, you know, the idea of, they asked Michelangelo, I think, how did you carve like the statue of David out of that block of marble? He's like, well, I just looked at the block of marble and I just chipped away everything that wasn't the statue, wasn't David, you know? I just saw what wasn't, what shouldn't be there, and I, then I, let what was there emerge. And I feel like that that makes sense for me as far as like so many comedians, at least 
I can only speak for myself really, but I was like, oh, like I started doing, writing thousands of jokes. And eventually I chipped away and audiences helped me chip away at the ones that weren't or oughtn't to be part of my act or the ones that I didn't want to be. Or we all agreed, we're like, which ones go in the act? Ah, this is the one. This is my Michelangelo's David of uh, fart jokes. And I, so I, I remember, uh, not knowing how to do it, but I was like, well, I guess you just do it until you know, right? And, and so I feel like the, the same way that uh, it feels like the experience of like getting on TV is like the thing, the enlightenment that we all seek, you know, like the be all end all, but ultimately it was like, oh, well, now that I've done that, what do I do? Well, I keep writing and performing. I keep chopping wood and carrying the water that I've been doing. And, uh, and so along the way, around 2007, 2008, I did also get a college booking agent who saw me do a set at a comedy festival in Washington, DC, uh, which I was at because I had the previous year been uh, a part of a comedy competition in Seattle, the Seattle International Comedy Competition, which, you know, I think pretty much many anybody can apply to and they have maybe 30 comedians a year and you have to like commit to being there potentially for a month uh which is you know not something that everybody can do or wants to do but i ended up being there for two weeks uh and then i, I got out of the first round into the second round then i got eliminated but in the first round i was all, also there was rory scovel who is an amazing comedian now like i'm and i was thrilled to meet him and become his friend and see him both see him work, which inspired me in other ways to do things differently in my own comedy. But in this particular story, he just had, he had a comedy manager who was producing this festival in DC. She saw me in Seattle, was like, do you wanna be a part of this festival? I said, yes, I, I got seen there by a college booking agent. They were like, we'd love to represent you. And so then they started sending me out to do colleges. They started submitting me to be a part of this uh, conference called NACA. Uh, which is the National Association of Campus Activities. And I got enough gigs from this particular showcase that allowed me in 2007, 2008 to think, well, if I make this, if I get this many gigs every year, which isn't guaranteed, but if I got enough this year that I don't need to do my cafe job, that I don't need to do my camp counseling job, that I don't need to do my resident assistant job, that I don't need to do my linguistic annotation job. I could now, this year, live the dream that I originally had of only doing stand-up comedy for my living. So I'm going to finish grad school, leave the residence hall, move to New York. I happened to meet a woman who I started dating and she was like, move to New York, move in with me. I need a roommate. And so I moved to New York, moved in with her, no longer had any of what seemed like, you know, the not crutches, but just sort of like the safety uh, apparatus that I had, like when I'm like, I'm in grad school. I, I have a place to live that they pay for. I have a job that I can go to and gives me enough money. But I'm like, I think that this is, I think this is possible right now. And so I moved to New York in 2008. Uh, and that is uh, the year that I got on television for the first time. Uh, and had all of these sort of, everything sort of started incrementally growing uh, to the point that I was able to uh, continue to sustain that. And look, I, next year, I mean, last year, the like the pandemic was like uh, a thing that, uh, so most people who weren't, you know, I guess epidemiologists, uh, most people who weren't uh, pandemic researchers didn't see coming. Certainly 
most comedians didn't see the pandemic coming. And so, uh, but up until that point, I was like, so far, so good. Here I am. And I started in 2008, 9, 10, uh, like just touring to headline colleges and with the 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 proof that I was a comedian that could do comedy that people accepted. I got uh, a manager, I got an agent who helped me help book me at places uh, and help me get on more TV shows and just continue to spawn uh, the career of getting to travel the country and travel the world and travel the city to do stand up, which is all I ever wanted to do. That's awesome. Um yeah wow that's an incredible story you honestly went all the way through like the beginning of time up through the pandemic <laughs> really what like what we're here for um we are unfortunately out of time right now is there anything before we go that you would like to promote for our listeners oh sure uh thank you for asking and uh i'll i'll say this also uh, if you, I don't know if you ever have repeat guests, I'm happy to come back and uh, give you uh, an update as as we get, as more time comes in. Uh, this just in, because uh, I know sometimes you talk about what happens during the pandemic as well. So I'll I'll in in the plugs. I'll also share that during the pandemic, I started a new podcast uh, called The Faucet, uh, and I had a podcast previously that also I still have called Broccoli and Ice Cream. Uh, that I'd love for people to listen to. On Broccoli and Ice Cream, I have chats with guests about the the work that they do in their life, whether it's comedy or other kinds of art, music, or therapy, whatever it might be. Uh, and that's the broccoli of their existence. And then I talk to them about the joys, the things that bring them peace and calm and help them feel the way they want to feel when they're not quote unquote working. And that's the ice cream. So that's Broccoli and Ice Cream. The Faucet is a podcast where I just talk myself and uh, my girlfriend recommended, she was like, why don't you have a podcast where it's just you? Because during the pandemic, I ended up doing all these Zoom shows where I would talk for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour sometimes. And I'm like, oh, sometimes just riffing brand new hours of potential comedy or you know, music, lyrics, poetry, whatever it might be. And she's like, yeah, you're just basically, you could turn the faucet on and off. So we're like, oh yeah, that's, so she came up with the concept, the name, and uh, and so that was born into the world. So those are my podcasts. Uh, my stand-up albums exist uh, wherever you get your albums, downloading or streaming. My most recent one's called AKA that came out last year during the pandemic. I, if you only, if you only engage with one hour of anything that I do, aside from this, I would say, uh, check out that uh the album aka it's my most recent my happiest my proudest work to date uh, also i'm doing shows live various places uh if you're in those places come see them i'm also doing some online shows here and there so if you want to find me mikekaplan.com m-y-q-k-a-p-l-a-n.com also at mike kaplan spelled that way on all social media and I have a new newsletter that I put out every week where it's full of jokes and or other fun units. It's at mikekaplan.substack.com. And I think those are the main ways to find me. Thank you for asking and for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to Laughing Your Mask Off. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a good review. To keep up with our hosts, follow Catherine at Catherine.Cowan and Carly at Carly Palestina on Instagram. See you next week. <laughs>